opening to uh, welcome Jim Ace from Indianapolis. Everybody. My name is Jim Hesseholic. Uh, because I participate in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and through the grace of a God of my understanding, strong sponsorship, 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a little bit of effort on my part. I haven't taken a drink in about 14 years and 11 months. And Two days. But who keeps count, right? I'm a real alcoholic, in case you're wondering what one looks like. Um, and Patty was right. <laughs> I want to thank her and Kurt for uh, inviting me over here. First of all, usually what happens on these kinds of things is and I say this every time, but it happens to be true. Um, I get a call a lot of times at about, you know, 5.30 or 6 on a Saturday night like this, and they'll say, uh, we had a real good speaker lined up for tonight, but they couldn't make it, you know. And you're the last guy we could think of. <laughs> kind of puts things into perspective. I always want to know how many other people were on the list. You know, I guess they've still got an ego. I was, in a, I was invited to talk at a, at a conference over in Ohio. Um, and actually, the guy that was invited to talk couldn't make it. And his name's Gary B. and he's from Indianapolis. And, he, and he's 30 years sober. And he stands about 6'5". And he's 30 years sober. And he looks like Tom Selleck. And he weighs about 210 pounds. And when I got over there, I said, you were supposed to have a speaker that was 6'5", 200 pounds, 30 years sober, and looked like Tom Selleck. And I said, well, 200 pounds, one out of four isn't bad. I guess. <laughs> you know. Uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that we are a group of people who normally do not mix. And it's a delight, in my case, to come to a place like this on a Saturday night and you get to sit back and watch people who normally do not mix, mix. And it's really kind of neat. And I'm delighted to see kids here. Um, there are some in the program that will tell you that you know, you ought to leave the kids at home and all that other sort of stuff. And I'll talk about that a little later. But I'm always glad to see kids here at, at functions like this. Because I don't think you can expose anybody too early to a program that talks about a life that's worthwhile. I don't think you can start that too early. And I have a nine-year-old daughter, which I'll talk about later. But one of the things that was, when I was, when she was very young, 
and my wife was working and I needed a meeting and I needed a place to go, one of the things that felt good was the fact that I could, could put that kid in the car and take him to wherever alcoholics congregate. And the neat part about it was that there'd always be five or six women that'd hover around her and take care of her. You know, it was really great. I'm just an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a speaker. I'm just an alcoholic. And because I'm just an alcoholic, uh, I talk about alcoholics. I don't talk much about alcoholism. And I don't talk about much about drinking because if you were to line everybody up in this room and you started telling war stories about the way we drank, I don't have a real exceptional war story. And I always found that it was kind of like a can you top this number. And you never want to get into a can you top this with a bunch of alcoholics, okay? You'll lose every time. I don't care who you are. There's somebody in that room that has always had it worse than you had it, you know? Uh, you know, people used to say to me things like, how are you? And I'd say, just fine for today. And, and they'd look at you weird. And uh, I'd say, well, you see, I'm not going to tell you how I really am because when I get done telling you how I am, you're going to say, you think that's bad? You ought to hear what happened to me, okay? And the first liar doesn't have a chance. He doesn't have a shot. And that's the way it is around here. Um, I came from a middle-income, middle-American type family, dead in the middle of Indiana, a little town called Lafayette. It's a college town. My father worked for a university there. And I come from a family of 12 kids. Uh, we were obviously Catholic and Irish, and it is true when you get four Irish Catholics together, you'll always find a fifth. It's always true. And my father said a guy who said it was cheaper by the dozen ought to be taken out and shot. Some days I agreed with him. And I can't stand up here and tell you, though, that the reason that I'm an alcoholic is that I was raised at the hands of abusive parents, or that I came from a single-parent home, or that I was deprived in any way growing up. I can't stand up here and tell you that that's the reason I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because the Chinese have a statement that they make as it relates to alcohol. They said, first the man takes the drink, and then the drink takes the drink, and then the drink takes the man. And in that short phrase, you just summed up my drinking career. I came out of high school heading for college with all the anticipation of any other 18-year-old. The world was going to be my oyster. I knew that. Somewhere along in that high school course of study, somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and, and I've been around the program long enough to run into a, a, a majority of people in the program that this has happened to. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder at one time or another and they said, you, Jim Hessian, are a sharp kid. You got something on the ball. And I heard that. And what I did with that is I put that in the back of my head. And I spent the rest of the time trying to measure up to some sort of idea that I had created as to what a sharp kid was, what a smart person was. 
And so, at that point in time, my quote, growth, unquote, stopped. And the ego and all those other things continued. And what I did was I grew up to be, I went from a scared little boy to a scared little man, and I spent a great deal of time making sure that you knew who I was, but I spent an equally great amount of time never allowing you to know what I was. And I spent a great deal of time making sure that you never found out that I walked around most of the time scared to death that you were going to discover me as a fraud. I came out of high school heading for college with all that anticipation and went into that university setting and I was way out of line. I was a fish out of water. I was among normal people and I didn't know how to act or react under normal circumstances with normal people. There was one bar on that college campus, they didn't even call it a bar, they called it a chocolate shop. And I gravitated to Harry's chocolate shop and took up residence and spent the next year and a half attempting to act like a college student. Didn't work. A year and a half into that curriculum, a dean that was head of the university or the, the school I was going to called me into his office and said, Mr. Hessian, we have a criteria for a grade in any one of the classes we have here at the university. It's called attendance. If you don't show up, we don't give you a grade. You haven't been doing that very regular. And if you don't start doing it with some consistency, we're going to put you on probation. Well, I'm like any other alcoholic. A friend of mine said, you know, the one thing that you can't do to an alcoholic is you can't threaten one you can't insult one, you can't embarrass one, you can't point fingers at one and say, you better do this, because the minute that you say you better do this to an alcoholic, he'll figure out a way to beat you over the head with it. And that's exactly right. I walked out of that dean's office and I said, I'll show him, and I went back to Harry's chocolate shop to do what I had found out was the right thing to do, you know, and I dared him to throw me out of school, you know, dared him to, and he did, you know. I got a notice in the mail that said, your friends and neighbors have selected you. I thought they made a poor choice, and I was drafted into the United States military. There was a conflict going on at the time overseas, and in the or in Southeast Asia, and the only smart thing I have ever done in my life that I'll take a little bit of credit for was I applied myself on a battery of tests upon entering the military, and not too long after I was there, they offered me the opportunity to learn how to fly. And they presented a real neat picture to me. They said, we have a school that's 42 weeks long, and we'll teach you how to fly helicopters, and at the end of this 42-week period of time, what we're going to do... <coughs> is we're going to graduate you, and at that time we're going to ask you for a three-year commitment. And I said, do you mean to tell me that between now and the end of that commitment, or the end of that 42 weeks, uh, if I don't want to, I don't have to make a commitment for any more time? And they said, no, only when you graduate. So I worked out a plan. I figured I'd go 42 weeks, and I'd flunk out, just like I'd flunked out of everything else, and they'd let me out, and everything would be fine. 
Well, there were 350 people that started into that class of mine in Texas, and 42 weeks later, 24 of us graduated. I got down there and I found out that those guys were grinds and I became one of the biggest grinds in the world. And I didn't drink all through that 42 week period of time and somehow at the end of that period of time I came up on a list to graduate. I was graduated and I was, uh, was given a commission by the Secretary of the Army as a warrant officer and was sent overseas. And I spent the next four years in a combat situation. And I can stand up here and tell you that the reason that I'm an alcoholic is because I'm a combat aviator, that I've been shot down and shot up and shot over. That is true. Those things did happen, but that's not the reason I'm an alcoholic. The reason I'm an alcoholic is because the man took the drink, the drink took the drink, and the drink took the man. It's that simple. Now, as I told somebody else earlier this evening, I don't know if when I was born, I was born an alcoholic, but I know that when I got overseas and started drinking, an alcoholic was born. And I started drinking like an alcoholic. And then when I got out of the, came back and got out of the service, all of a sudden the whole ball game changed. And I was changed. I tried to go back to school for a while and that didn't work. I tried to hold down different jobs and I was pretty successful. I got a couple of decent jobs and moved up the corporate ladder and, but the problem was I started settling for less. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you settle for less, but I was settling for less. You know, I, I was the epitome of what Bill Wilson talked about. I identified with him, you know, when they showed in that movie after the stock market crashed and everybody in the world is jumping off a building, you know. And what's Bill Wilson doing? He's on the phone, putting together the deal. And he has the deal put together. He's called Canada, he's called California, he's got a bunch of investors put together, and the stock market crash isn't gonna bother him one iota. And he's got all these people coming into New York City and he's gonna have them sit down for a meeting and when he gets done with this meeting, he's gonna create his own brokerage firm and onward and upward and away we go. And the day before he's supposed to make this meeting, he goes out and gets drunk and fails to show up at the meeting. And everything goes poof. I watched that in that movie and I understood what he was talking about because it happened to me over and over and over again. You know, and those kinds of things happen to me a lot. And as I settle for less, I start settling for le less for not only in the way that I live, but I start settling for less in the people that I associate with, I start settling for less in the areas where I live, I start settling for less in the things that go on around in my life, and all of a sudden I have an erosion of my value system. You know, I'm an alcoholic and I was raised in a parochial environment and I was given good moral standards and I was given a good education and all those things. And I understood what, right, what the difference between right and wrong was. But you put two shots of alcohol in me and all of a sudden my morals go out the door. You put two shots of alcohol in my, on me and I don't want to go to work tomorrow. You put two shots of alcohol in me and to hell with her, I can get another one just like her. You know, you give me two shots of alcohol and I wreck my car. Somebody says you wrecked your car. I say, so what? I'll give another one tomorrow. People said to me, Jim, you keep acting the way you're acting, they're going to kick you out of the place you live. So what? I'll get another place to live. 
You can't scare an alcoholic, you can't insult an alcoholic, you can't threaten an alcoholic, you can't browbeat an alcoholic. One of my early sponsors used to say the definition of an alcoholic is a guy laying in the gutter, drunk, flat on his back, looking up at you, still thinking he's better than you are. And that was me. That was me. Something happened, though. And you see it in people. You know, one of the reasons that we have a chapter in the big book called Working With Others, and one of the reasons why one of the things they say in that chapter is don't be too aggressive with somebody. Don't be too, too anxious to get him in, to saddle him into the program. It's because, you know, if somebody that saddled me into the program too soon, it probably would have worked against me. But the fact was, is that, you know, I had to make that transition. When I made that transition to where it went from drinking with a purpose to drinking with no purpose, then I crossed that invisible line. And when I crossed that invisible line and stepped over onto the alcoholism side, no longer was it a matter of, you know, you could point your finger at me and say, when are you going to do something about your alcohol problem? And a year ago, I'd have said, I don't have an alcohol problem. When I cross that line, all of a sudden I'm saying, I don't know. I don't know. What do you want me to do? The people used to say to me, Jim, you got so much potential. What are you doing throwing it down the tube? And I wanted to grab a hold of them and scream. If you see all that potential, how come they don't see it? And more importantly, how come I don't see it? How come I walk around scared to death you're going to discover me for what I really am? How come I'm scared to death of myself? How come my head hits a pillow at night and I can't go to sleep? You know, the only way I can go to sleep is two or three or four bangs off of that bottle. And I, I'm gone to that point where I don't want to drink anymore. It's not a matter of wanting to drink anymore. It's a point of matter of having to drink. And there's a difference. There's a difference. You know... It bothers me sometimes when I hear somebody say, well, I'm not going to talk to that guy about his drinking because he's not ready yet. It bothers me when I hear that. Because I'll tell you something. If somebody had been waiting on me to get ready yet, they'd still be waiting on me. But there was a guy who understood perfectly what happened on that day in Akron, Ohio, when the sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous or the sober individual sought out the drunk, he understood what happened on that day. And because he didn't want to drink that day, he sought me out. Now, he didn't go into the bar and drag me out. But he came to where I lived because he knew I was hurting. I gravitated to a little city called Lebanon, Indiana. Lebanon's got a sign out in front of the city, out near the interstate, and it says, Lebanon, Indiana, the friendly city. Don't you believe it if you're a drunk. <laughs> I had my car parked a block and a half down the street, so nobody knew I was home. I know nobody in Cincinnati ever does that, right? Park your car down the street so nobody knows you're home. I'm driving a 66 Dodge Dart with dents on all four corners, headlights being held in with duct tape, trunk lid being held down with binder twine. I bought it for $50, still owed the guy 25 
and I got it parked a block and a half down the street so nobody knows I'm home. I got the only 66 Dodge Dart with dents on all four corners in the city of Lebanon, Indiana. Everybody knows where I'm at. This guy knocks on my door. The difference, the difference. Instead of saying, Jim, when are you going to do something about your problem? He said, Jim, I want to tell you about what has happened to me over the past year. I'd known this guy. He was my boss. A year earlier, a year and a half earlier, he had gotten fired. When he got fired, he called me into his office and he said, he said, uh, Jim, I got fired today. And I said, Charlie, what are you going to do? He said, Jim, I got something I got to tell you. He said, I'm an alcoholic. I said, sure you are, Charlie, so am I. So, so what? You know, I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic long before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And admitting it, so what? I'd admitted that. That didn't mean anything. Sure, I'm an alcoholic. But Charlie said something different that day. He said, no, Jim, you don't understand. He said, I, for the past three weeks, I've been going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those people tell me, and I believe them, that it's going to be all right. I said, Charlie, how do you know that? Now, I knew something about Charlie. Let me tell you about the condition that he arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a wife that had just filed the divorce papers. He just got fired from his job that day. He had a 13-year-old daughter who had run away from home, was living on the streets of Los Angeles, working as a hooker. He had a five-year-old son who would not stay in the same room with him alone. Now, that's the condition that he was in and on that particular day when he told me that those people tell me, and I believe them, it's going to be all right. One year passed. Through a sequence of events, Charlie knocks on my door. He said, Jim, I'd like to tell you what has happened to me over the past year. He didn't say, Jim, do you think you've got a problem with alcohol? He did, he did exactly what the book said to do. He didn't, he sat and listened to me for a minute while I complained about everything and everybody. And then he said, Jim, let me tell you what has happened to me in the past year. First of all, his wife had torn up the divorce papers. He had gotten a better job. The 14-year-old had moved back home, was living at home, going to high school, getting good grades. And the five-year-old was now six years old and dad was taken to t-ball practice. One year from the time that that man had a devastated life in front of him, his whole life had been brought back together and put back together by a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. He showed me hope. One of the unique characteristics of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is that you ask anybody, any professional anywhere, to give you a definition of what an alcoholic is, and you can line 10 professionals up and you'll get 10 different definitions of what an alcoholic is. You come to this program and they don't talk about definitions. The brilliance of this book is that two-thirds of this book is a description of an alcoholic. You can argue all day long with a definition and you can come up with hundreds of different definitions, but it's awful hard to argue with a description. And that's the difference. 
he showed me what the description of an alcoholic is. And he talked about that. He shared his experience, his strength, and his hope. And when he got done, he said, Jim, would you like to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, of course. I'm no fool. Most of us aren't fools. I said, of course. I go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Actually, what happened that day was was Charlie was going to take me to that meeting, and halfway to that meeting, it had been about three or four hours since my last drink, and Charlie noticed that, and I was shaking pretty bad, and he said, do you think maybe you can use some medical assistance with your problem? And I said, Charlie, let me bring you up to date. It's been about four months since my last job. Uh, my Blue Cross Blue Shield is not what you call current. Uh, lapse is a word I heard used a lot. Um, I don't think I know of too many hospitals who are real interested in charity cases. And my friend Charlie said, I know where you can get some help. Keyword, help. He said, it's downtown Indianapolis. It's not the Hyatt, but it's close to the Hyatt. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know where the Salvation Army Detox Center used to be in downtown Indianapolis, it used to be about two blocks down from the Hyatt. I found myself at the Hyatt. At the, at the detox center. My friend Charlie said, you stay here for as long as they tell you to stay. And so I stayed for the next five days and I went through all the things that you go through coming off of about 13, 14 years worth of serious drinking. I puked and I, and I sweated and I didn't sleep much and I drank more Gatorade than the law to allow. To this day, to this very instant, I will not touch Gatorade in any form. Charlie came back and picked me up and took me to my first meeting, and it was a Wednesday night meeting, and they call it As You Are. It means come as you are. And I can't remember what the speaker said, but there were some, some, some significant things that went on that night. First of all, when I walked into place, I noticed a very significant item. It was 8.30 at night. It was kind of smoky like it is here right now, but they had donuts. Now, I say this all over the country, and nobody in AA gets it, okay? I got a news flash for you. The rest of the world eats donuts in the morning, okay? The rest of all them normals out there, they get up for breakfast. They have donuts. We have them at 8.30 at night, you know? <laughs> got to have our sugar fix, you know? They're eating donuts at 8.30 at night. My kind of people. I mean, this is all right. I thought I was the only guy in the world who wanted a donut before I went to bed at night, you know. <clears throat> guy walks by me and says, you don't have a cup of coffee, I'll get you one. And before I could stop him, he's gone, you know. Well, I didn't want to tell him, you know, I can't handle no coffee. I came back and he set a cup of coffee in front of me and I'd never met him before in my life. Wouldn't know him today if I fell over him. But that guy knew me like a book. Because what he set down in front of me was a half full cup of coffee. The man was an absolute genius. Because you see, there was no way in this world I was gonna get a full cup of coffee from that table to my mouth without spilling it all over myself. And the man set me down a half full cup of coffee. I said, man, I'm at home. I know something. These people are all right. Guy come up to me after the meeting and he said, you got a job? I said, no. He said, you want a job? 
Oh, boy, this is great. You know, you can get a job here. I heard you over there. He said, no, but don't want a job. Uh, I said, what doing? He said, it's hard work. I said, I've never been afraid of hard work in my life. Now, that is true. For those of you who heard me talk earlier, I used to say I'm not afraid of hard work. That is true. I'm not afraid of hard work. That doesn't say that I do hard work. I'm just not afraid of it, okay? He says, hard work. It's uh, landscaping work. It's pulling up shrubbery. He managed an estate on the north side of Indianapolis. And he said, I'll put you to work tomorrow morning. And I said, why are you giving me this job? He said, uh, you're a friend of Charlie's, aren't you? I said, that's no endorsement for a job, friend of Charlie's. Why are you giving me, you never met me, I, you don't know me from Adam. What are you giving me this job for? He said, you're an alcoholic, aren't you? Well, if he'd have wanted me to be Chinese, I'd have been Chinese at that moment. Sure, yeah, I'm whatever you want me to be. I say that for a reason. We come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and a lot of times we put a lot of pressure on the new person, okay? And see, I came in here with the, with the fact that I couldn't distinguish the true from the false. And when that man said, are you an alcoholic? I said, sure, I'm an alcoholic. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Because at that time in my alcoholism, I got to the point where I was a chameleon. I changed my spots, changed my colors. I would do whatever you wanted me to do as long as you had something that would help me out. Okay? And, and, and I was like that. The guy said, you, you, you know, you got to be an alcoholic to do this job. I'm an alcoholic, you know. I'm whatever you want me to be. Because I had become a survivor. And that's extremely important. You see, survivors make it to Alcoholics Anonymous. Most alcoholics do not make it to Alcoholics Anonymous. Most of them die. And they don't die pretty. They die horrendous deaths. But they don't call it death by alcoholism. What they call it is getting into one of those 3,000 pound bullets and hurling it down a highway at 70 miles an hour and slamming it into a bridge abutment. And they call it, they call it reckless driving. Or it's a guy that sticks a 357 Magnum up the side of his head and pulls the trigger. And they call it suicide. Or it's the guy that beats up the wife and then kills himself. And they call it domestic violence. It's alcohol. Pure and simple. And if we get here, anyone who gets to Alcoholics Anonymous and spends one day sober, we're a winner. We're a winner. You're not a loser. You're a winner here. And that's the difference. And that's what makes us different from every other organization out there. Is we don't talk about what the causes are. We talk about how to get the solutions, and that's the difference here. And my, that man said, are you an alcoholic? I said, sure I am. And I showed up the next day to go to work for Ed. By the, name, by the way, the guy's name was Slippery Ed. Now, he didn't get the name Slippery Ed because he came in and had instant success in AA. He was only around here about 11 years before he put one, one six-month period of sobriety together. The Slippery Ed's been sober over 20 years now, but, but uh, oh, Slippery Ed, I worked for Slippery Ed, and all day long we'd have these little mini AA meetings all day long, and then at the end of the night, at the end of the day, Ed would say, where are you going to a meeting at tonight? 
I thought it was a, you know, a requisite of my job, you know, that I got to go to a meeting. So I'd say, well, uh, and he'd pull out one of them little books and he'd say, there's a good meeting over here. Well, I figured out right away I got to get me one of them books, you know. So I go to the meeting, find out where the books are, get one of them little pocket books, got all the meetings in it, you know, and I'm showing up to a meeting because I'm thinking he's going to be there, you know. And then I get me one of those little books and I'm shucking and jiving in A&A. See, I'm going to the meetings and I'm getting sober and good things happen to alcoholics who don't drink and I learn the slogans and think, think, think and one day at a time and easy does it and all that stuff. Got a quarter in my pocket to call my sponsor. Didn't have a sponsor, but I got a quarter to call him, you know. And I'm learning, I'm learning all the things. See, I'm a quick study, you know, and I'm trying to blend right in. I'm trying to be a chameleon in the meeting, you know. And, and I'm coming to the meetings, and, and if you're new in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll tell you how to get over in the meetings right away. You know, uh, first of all, you know, Charlie kind of was with my temporary sponsor, you know, and, and I said, Charlie, what meetings should I go to? And he said, you just go to speaker meetings. He says, they're the ones in the book with the S next to it. I said, what about those ones that say D next to it? He said, that's a discussion meeting. He said, you don't need to go near those. I said, why not? He says, you don't have anything to say. Well, guess what? Guess where I'm heading to do, you know? I'm going directly to the discussion meeting, you know? And I'm single at the time, see? So I walk into the discussion meetings and I found the ones that, you know, the seed, the closed discussions, you know, that said, that didn't say men only or women only, meant there was women in the meeting, you know? And I discovered women in the A&A meetings, you know, and that was great. And, and so I'm a new guy in the meeting and there's a way in the meetings, in the discussion meetings, if you, you can figure out what the important things are to say. What I do is if you watch, if you got to sit so that you can watch the whole room. But if you watch the whole room, there's always one guru in the, in the meetings, you know, and he'll say something and eight or nine heads will go like this, okay? Now, all you got to do is just go to the meeting tomorrow night and say what he said last night. You know, people look at you, well, he knows what he's talking about. You know, I'm moving right along in A&A, you know, I'm... I'm doing this whole thing, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to put the smooth moves on the babes, you know, and they're telling me to go jump in the river, you know, and I can't figure out why, that, you know, I got a whole lot to offer somebody, you know, I'm living in a one-room apartment, still driving that 66 Dodge Dart, you know, with dents on all four corners, that you got to get out through the passenger side, you can't get out the driver's side, because, you know, I used to think that I ought to put a bullseye on that thing and say, hit it here next, you know. Park it in, you park it in enough bar parking lots and it'll get hit, you know, and that's what happened. <clears throat> I'm in this meeting on a Friday night. I'd gone down that day. I went down to the, uh, somebody said, you got to know where the central office is. And I went down there and they had these, these stickers that you could put on the back of your car. They easy does it sticker. So I got me one of those stickers and I put it right above on my trunk lid, you know, and then Friday night I'm going to this meeting and, and at last there's a meeting in a bank, Okay which I thought was just absolutely bizarre, you know? We got an AA meeting in the basement of a bank. Just blew me away. You know, I've been trying to get into a bank after hours for years, and these AAs walk in the door, couldn't believe it, you know? How are these guys doing this? And they're with all that money by themselves. Forgot to tell me they take the money out every night, you know, as a branch bank. But I'm in this bank in this basement. The only place to park was a place up front, you know? And so I parked my car up there, and I walked into this meeting, and there's this guy standing up there talking. And he's talking real funny, and he's real kind of nasally squeaky, you know? And he's real irritating, you know? And he's going on and on, and he says, you know how you can tell one of those real alcoholics 
He says, they're the ones with the cars with the dents on all four corners and the easy desert sticker right on the back bumper, you know. I'm about 30 days sober seeing out the man's knocking my car, you know. He don't know what I went through to get that car, you know. I'm real indignant, you know, and he's the one that talked about, you know, the guy in the gutter, you know, looking up at you, still thinking he's better than you are, you know. So I cornered him after the meeting, and I said, what are you knocking my car for, you know? He said, man, I'm not knocking your car. I was knocking my car. I had one just like it, you know, 10 years earlier. And he said, let's go get some coffee, and we went to get some coffee, and he said, you got a sponsor? And I said, no, and he said, well, I'm it. You know, uh, uh-oh, I got a sponsor. Now I'm in trouble. You really didn't want one of those. You know, heard people talking about it to me. He said, you read the big book yet? Uh, well, of course I read the big book. Of course I have. He said, where is it? I said, at home. He said, well, I'm going to be at this meeting tomorrow night. You bring that big book with you, and I'll point out some things in there you ought to read. You know, so I went and got a big book. I didn't buy a big book, I got a big book. <coughs> and the reason I got a big book was so I could say, I got a big book, you know. I wasn't going to read it, you know, and he said, now, the first 164 pages, he said, you just skip that, don't worry about that right now. He says, it's too deep for you intellectual types. He said, you go to the back of the book where the stories are and you read them, maybe you can identify with them, you know. And he says, and I'll see you tomorrow night at another meeting. He didn't ever ask me if I wanted to go to another meeting or if I might show up. You know, and he never picked me up for one meeting. Never once. He said, I'll see you at this meeting. You know, if you want what we have, then you do what we do, was the program he gave to me. You know, and so I'm shucking along in A&A, and I got me a little bit better job, and I got my jeans cleaned, and I got... You know, I got some real food in the refrigerator. You know, I got the apartment cleaned up. The landlord was delighted about that. Got the rent paid, you know. And I got a little better job, and, and things are moving right along. Get me a little bit better car. And, you know, moving right along in A&A. &A, and, and I'm taking credit for all of it. You know, I'm 60 days sober. I'm 90 days sober. You know, I'm working this program. Me, 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 me. You know, I'll tell you something. Good things happen to alcoholics that don't drink. If you come into this program, if you don't drink and you go to meetings, I'll guarantee you good things will happen to you. Good things happen to me. You know, I got some real food in the refrigerator. I mean, real food. You know, domestic stuff like eggs and milk and, you know, instead of what was in there most of the time, you know, which was White Castles and vodka. You know, that was what was in there. That was my idea of real food before I came to the program. <coughs> and I'm... I'm going to these meetings, you know, and, and uh, I'm chucking and jiving in the meetings, and I was lucky enough to go to a meeting, and there was a guy by the name of Van that talked at this meeting, and Van was the type of guy that didn't need a microphone, he had one of these booming voices, you know, and Van, when we walked in the door, he said, 99 and 44 to 100% of you SOBs lied the day you walked in here. I'm about 90 days sober, he's calling me a liar, you know. <laughs> 
I love these new people in the program. Uh, I love people in the program. They say, well, I'm not going to work with that individual unless he's totally honest with me. Give me a break. You know? We don't know honesty if it hit us over the head. You know? You want somebody to be totally honest with you? It's like that line from that movie, A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. And that's a fact. It's a fact. Most of us can't. You know? He said, you people came into the program with Alcoholics Anonymous and you said you wanted to get sober and the last thing you wanted to do was get sober. You just wanted all the problems to go away. Man nailed me right between the eyes. He was exactly right. I didn't come in here and get sober. The last thing I wanted to do was get sober. I just wanted all the problems to go away. I got sober and the problems did start to go away. That's one of the unique gifts in this program. But he said, if you put the program into your life, if you don't drink, if you go to meetings, if you get a sponsor, if you try to put the 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in your life, your life is going to change beyond your wildest dreams. But he said, if you pick up the drink again, now you know. Now you know. No more excuses. No more alibis. You know why. You picked up the drink, and you know the result. And I'll not take you through the next six months. I went out and picked up the drink again, and now I knew. And he told me that night, he said, I'll introduce you, if you pick up that drink again, I'll introduce you to the most horrendous pain known to man. That's the pain of despair. There is no physical pain in the world as traumatic as the pain of despair. And I understood that pain. And most alcoholics that I know understand that pain. And Wilson was right about not being too aggressive because until you understand that pain, you don't understand the program. And as my friend Milt from Cleveland says, I understand that pain because I cried them tears. See, I understand what an alcoholic is because sitting on the side of the bed at 2.30 in the morning crying my eyes out, I understood. And I'll tell you something. It wasn't death that scared me. The idea of me dying didn't scare me one bit. But from that time on, what absolutely horrified me, what causes an individual to crawl into one of those automobiles and hurl it down the highway into a bridge abutment, or what causes that individual to pull that weapon out and point it into his brain and pull the trigger, or what causes that individual to shoot somebody else and then shoot themselves, is that pain of despair that says, I'm not gonna die. I'm gonna live to be about 85. And when you're 32 years old, and you know you're gonna live to be about 85, that's a hell of a long time. That's a hell of a lot of tears. And that's a hell of a long time to be a disappointment to just about everybody. And it's one of those meetings, I don't know, if it's one of those gratitude meetings. Oh, it's, oh alcoholic phenomenon. I mean, it's reeks of sweetness all over AA. Going around and he, he, the old lady's on my ass all the time. Haven't had a job in nine months. The kids, I can't talk to them. They've been repossessed in the furnace. Don't drink. Bull. Yeah, but I heard you when you said those things to me. You said there are those unfortunate there. 
this program might work for you, but it ain't going I know that. Now, I won't say that to me at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm scared to death. I said, you can take away from that meeting. And he said, by the way, that meeting, don't leave anything. AA is not a dumping ground for you. Talking about a step, and you haven't uh, taken that step, you don't have anything to say. You are up there talking, and I know this, this doesn't happen in Tucson. Every once in a while in Indianapolis, we up here, it kind of bores you a little bit. I know that doesn't happen here, right? And, and, and the door, there'd be a somebody there. A number of things have happened. And I'm going to give you two things. And I'm, and I'm saying my morning meditation, you don't ask for it, you won't get it. And so I said, God, it's kind of lonely around here. Mind. Uh, they said, if you don't ask, you don't get it. So I'm asking to make her a blonde accent. And... And I'll do the interviewing for you. I said about the task of interviewing, and I mean no ill to the ladies, but in Indianapolis anyway, there. So I met every one of them. <laughs> Nothing will destroy my life. I'm gonna be. I quit looking. That's it. <clears throat> my wife's sponsor called up on Sunday. They had an open microphone out in front of them again, <clears throat> and the same thing would happen again. Sponsor talked to me about responsibility, and he said, you're, you're going to assume some responsibility. Now, that's what he, I got this part-time job, taking me to meetings, because I can't, my buddies in AA used to talk about it. And he always wanted to know how she was. I got on the crutches, and they say, how's your wife doing? You know, we know about you. You already showed us. So late, so 7 or 7.30. And he does what his sponsor and Frank said, you know what I think about your being? My friend Kenny went to see him, sent two of his apostles to his cousins. What he did was he told these are made well, and that the poor, in my early training, I was on page 152, feeling, but am I consigned? Have you a sufficient substitute? Yes, there is a substitute. It's vastly more than that. Care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination of your existence, this we and so will you.